to our daily gun show we come to you live every weeknight at midnight eastern or approximately around there and uh, we chat about guns for about an hour so we got uh dead horse jumping in from utah thanks for joining howdy got uh uh dog body you're in nevada right and you're muted but you didn't say if you said something we didn't hear it oh you're unmuted but we're not hearing it are you guys hearing them? Negative. Oh, we probably should have mic checked before. But anyway. How about now? You picking me up? Now you're good to go. Okay. Yeah, I'm in southern Nevada. Right on. Which, you know, we'll have to talk about that. And then I uh, got Woods from the uh, deep woods of the Pacific Northwest. Thanks for the invite. You bet. Thanks for jumping in. So you got no school tomorrow or something? Why are you off so late? Um, we got a bunch of meetings The kids leave early and there's a bunch of meetings about shit that I've heard about a million times. I so well, I don't have to be that well. conscious for that. That works out for us. So we got some other links out there. If people want to jump in, we do run this on YouTube only because night strike hasn't quite got the live thing working over on guntube.org, in which case we'll drop YouTube, like the gun hating assholes that they are. And we don't watch the chat over there anymore. So if you want to chat with us on this show, Head over to gunchannels.com. A lot of good people put their hard-earned money to make gun channels happen. It's five years old. We're not watching the YouTube side anymore, at least not on this show. If you guys want to, feel free. I ain't. So uh, now we'll dig into the show. It is episode something. Uh, it screwed it all up. So we're going to call it episode 672, but pretty soon we'll be past episode 700. Uh, it's Tuesday, so we like to take a look at our Second Amendment. We're going to talk about the state of the state of Utah, which is an awesome state, especially for Second Amendment, but for lots of other things, too. We're going to talk about some two-way groups and then whatever you all want to talk about. Everybody's got a book coming up. Uh, Woods has things he always likes to bring up. They're interesting. And Dead Horse has always got stuff to talk about. So um, before we dig in, anything we want to start with? Uh, thanks for the invite. Yeah, no worries. Good. No problem. So, um, yeah, we'll dig it. <laughs> uh, state of the state of Utah. Uh, Dead Horse, you're probably the resident expert. You want to give us a elevator speech on what it's like to live in Utah, gun-wise, Second Amendment-wise? Second Amendment-wise is absolutely awesome. Um, I hear these horror stories, and I watch these videos on uh, YouTube of people just open carrying, being harassed, or, you know, or just having, like, you know, a, a certain you know, firearm regulations, like you have to have a pin muzzle breaker, just all sorts of weird stuff. And I don't have to deal with any of that. So it's just been a real blessing to be able to live here and not have to experience those type of regulations. And all of a sudden, like, oh, I have to have fixed stocks or have this or that and change all my guns over. And I just haven't had had to go through something like that before. So it's been a blessing that I probably take for granted too much. Um, just in being able to walk down the street with a, you know, a sidearm or a rifle slung over your shoulder, um, you know, walk into a store open carrying, just no one says anything like, you know, like the, the police officers will literally wave at you as you walk down the street as they drive by. 
they don't stop you and ask you for your license or what you're doing stuff like that so it's a uh, it's really two way friendly in that aspect you know we have somewhat constitutional carry in our vehicles um where you don't need a any kind of special license or anything to keep a loaded firearm in your vehicle here um just on your person if it's concealed um but uh you know and hopefully hopefully we'll get the constitutional carry passed here soon it's passed a couple other times this our governor hasn't signed it into law but uh um but for the most part, I mean, it's an awesome two-way state. We have tons of gun stores. We have tons of gun manufacturers who make all sorts of guns and gun parts and accessories. And um, a lot of manufacturing goes here. And our state specifically looks for, goes out and looks for these manufacturers, um, gun manufacturers, and offers them tax incentives to move here, to move their manufacturing and, and stuff here. And so uh, not only are we okay with them building guns here and making guns here, we try and keep them here and bring them here with tax incentives and all sorts of stuff like that. So even our, uh, you know, even the government itself is, you know, for the most part here is, you know, we, we like guns. Like uh, everyone, uh, you know, uh, Utah's a heavily uh, LDS state. Um, LDS are probably some of the world's best preppers. As far as, uh, you know, guns, ammo, food, su supplies, uh, and stuff like that goes, that's pretty much built into their religion. And uh, that, I think, has helped benefited our uh, gun laws here um, from, some, from, you know, some of the crappy ones that we've had come up, not pass. So they've tried to pass stuff here, but it gets shot down pretty quick. A um, couple of things. There was something about schools a while back, and I thought you guys, from what I remember over the years, you guys kind of led the way with getting, uh, letting teachers do their thing, and, yep. and then there's open carry uh, of students. And then I want to talk about something else after that. But wasn't there something in the news? Maybe I'm, I'm not from Utah. I don't really hang out here. It's only my second visit, and you know, I just don't. You know, there's too many other states to pay attention to. I don't remember the specifics. But wasn't there something about? It was like a, some kind of an incident with a murderer who decided for political reasons to become infamous, knowing that the agenda based media was going to make him infamous if he used a certain implement like a firearm. And he chose to do that. And then instead of ducking and cowering like a lot of other areas would, you guys went the other way. And what armed students or teachers or both? Yep, we sure did. Uh, we armed all, all of our teachers. Uh... We give them the option if they want to carry or not. It's kind of like a don't ask, don't tell thing. And uh, we have uh, awesome companies like uh, UGE Exchange, Utah Gun Exchange, which uh, is also huge tube. They give free concealed carry classes to any teacher. So if you're a teacher or a student, they give you a free concealed carry class. So and I've class heard the number is at 5,000 at this point. Actually, probably more than that because they're not the only one giving free classes to, to the teacher. So they, right. that's so specifically they UTG is up to 5,000 concealed carry permit holders that they train for free. Yep. And and all those are teachers and, and, and stuff like that. And, uh, and with going to parent-teacher conferences and stuff, I've talked to some of my kids' teachers, and I know that my kids' teachers, like, they carry guns. And from what I can tell... It's about a, at least at least a 50-50 thing that about half the teachers are, are armed now. And I think that's a really good thing. And uh, and then we got open carry on college campuses. 
and which no one really practices on the college campuses. You don't, you, you'll hardly see the open carrier uh, that much on a college campus, but at least we have it. And that's a step in the right direction. So if we want to evoke that right, we can at any time. open chat so you guys if there's dead air feel free to chime in but woods i know you're an educator but um, um but i work in an elementary school so i'm wondering how much the elementary teachers would be doing that because i think it, it'd be great i walk by the sign every day and i i actually kind of laugh at it that you know my my second amendment stops apparently right here um if we wanted to try to arm teachers, I think we'd have a hard time getting grade schools to do that. But um, that's kind of awesome that, you know, that you have the option because like right now in Washington State, it's against Washington or Washington code for me to do that. But I would like just the law to go away. And even if there was just a district policy, I might be able to live with the district policy. But, um, you know, I don't want to you know commit a crime or anything. But um, in looking looking at all the information and like even talking to UG, one thing I think we all have to remember is you know school shootings don't happen at, hardly ever. There's a better chance that the building gets hit by lightning. And I've been trying to trying to push that a little more that you know that that fear that we have when it comes to schools and shooting and stuff, it really doesn't happen that often. Like fires happen way more often. There's way bigger problems and more dangerous things that happen in a school than a shooting. I mean, I'd suggest that like a car goes out of control and hits a school building more often than a murderer decides to pick up an implement that'll make them infamous on the agenda-based media. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think uh, now that said, would it be would I like it a little better if I got to if I got to carry in the school? By all means, but I I also work in an area that's. Um, it's yeah, the area's got some struggles and I'm one of those teachers that picked that on purpose. And I'm more worried about like a bad guy running onto campus that is like fleeing the cops because we've had that before, but they're not necessarily armed or dangerous or something. But I've definitely had to say, hey, you get the hell out of here before the cops can come because, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded by generally between 25 and 50 year old white chicks that aren't going to fight anybody because there's no security or anything. There's just me and one other guy. But that's not every school. And then usually middle schools and high schools usually have a, uh, a bigger um, ex-military population. And there's a lot more guys in element in uh, middle school and high school. Only 2% of teachers in the United States are even guys. Not saying that women can't have firearms by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's more likely that they're that they are. Yeah. Go ahead, Doc Buddy. Well, I was just gonna say, you know, I went to a when I when I finished high school, the high school I finished at had a gun range that had been closed off on the campus. And I look I think of it, you know, we went, I don't know how many years in this country where kids used to come to school with their rifles and we had marksmanship teams and everything else and we never had an issue. I think it's ridiculous that apparently we've gotten less trustworthy and it's all because of narratives they want to push. They don't want to push reality. Well, yeah, I'm old enough to remember. I used to drive to high school in my truck with the Marlin 60. I mean, just in the truck and it wasn't really that big of a deal. Nobody really thought anything of it. 
Yeah, and I, I just, you know, I mean, the, the fact that people are making a big deal about teachers potentially choosing to arm themselves and, uh, you know, I, I'd be more concerned about how many teachers are drinking with the students than I would be over a teacher carrying a gun. Exactly. <laughs> you are exactly right, Dog Daddy. I, I would be more concerned about that. Because even in my small town, we had a teacher who did something similar with like that with students, right? In a, you know, inappropriate and stuff, right? But like we haven't had like any kind of teacher like, you know, have a problem with them having a firearm since they all, all started carrying guns. Like not one single problem. Of, you know, no accidents, no accidental, you know, NDs or, you know, accidental discharges or nothing like that. Like we, there hasn't been a single issue. And it's out of sight, out of mind. Uh, I think the kids kind of know because, like, you know, my kids have talked about it and stuff. And I think the kids kind of have it worked out on which teachers they think have a gun and which ones they don't. And uh, but they still they even they, all they really do is just guess. Right. They, they still don't even know for sure. So. Which I think is a good thing. Like, you know, that, that's the whole point of concealed carry. One thing I've noticed is I talk to a lot of teachers that get really up in arms about arming teachers and they're like, oh my God, I have to get a gun now. And like, I keep telling him, nobody's telling you, you have to get a gun. Those of us that can want the option. Nobody's saying you have to. I'm not saying that. That's not what we're saying. But it's got the, the media's got this thing out there that's a lie that's saying that we're going to arm teachers and teachers are going to have to or something. And it's, I've, I've heard it probably 25, 30 times. Oh, so they think that they're like, oh, like they're going to be like, oh, you have to carry a gun now. And like, yeah, no, this is America. You should, you have a choice. Well, quite honestly, I know some really wonderful teachers that are damn near Disney princesses. They're not going to shoot anybody ever. They're just not in their nature. It's not in their makeup. It's not going to happen. Well, I'm going to put it like this. I don't know the, the total number, and it'd be interesting to find out what there is. But if we start with Columbine and go up to uh, the Florida shooting, we've lost five school officials who were on campus who died protecting students who all happened to be concealed carry holders who weren't carrying because they were at work. Yeah, true that. So... You know, I mean, <laughs> that just shows right there that we could have potentially right. saved so many lives. I if don't even think one of them had it. If even one of them had something, because what we know about shooters, what we know about the murderers that come is that if you put up any resistance, they fold up shop. I think that uh, from what like all the teachers I remember back in school, like even the teachers I didn't like and didn't like me. I don't have a single doubt in my mind that those teachers wouldn't have stepped in front of a gun for me or any other kid. Cause I think when you teach, you don't do it for the money. That's for sure. And, God no. <laughs> Cause you love the kids. Right. And uh, you know, you, you, you love what you do and, and you want to be, do something for our next generation, right? You want to make the world a better place. And I, uh, and so I, I have no doubt that all those teachers did that 100% willingly like you know and was using themselves as shields and stuff which is super sad right so one of the things that when woods was talking there made me think you you've seen the i'm sure you've seen stuff where they'll talk to a, a mom and they'll say would you kill somebody of course not oh it's not my nature i would never do it 
Like, would you kill somebody that was about to kill you? Nope. That's my time to die. Like that's, that's, that's how it is. That was meant to be. That sucks, but we all die. And that was my time. Would you kill somebody who's about to kill your kid? Yes. Right. So that's true. Yeah, I guess so that is true. How come that doesn't apply to these teachers? Would you, would you be satisfied with that answer when instead you could say, well, if there was a fire, do you just acknowledge that fires happen and it's time to die? Or do you have the kids run through exercises to, uh, or whatever, you know, yeah, exercises to get the hell out of the school and, uh, you know, know how to work a fire extinguisher perhaps like, oh, there's a fire extinguisher there, but it's not my nature to use a fire extinguisher. If a fire happens, even if it's my fault, the kids are going to die and I'm going to die and maybe the rest of the school will burn down, but that's the time to, you know, no, they're not going to take that. They're going to say, show me how to use that fire extinguisher. If someone says stranger danger in the parking lot or whatever the equivalent is today, you know, okay, well, is that kid, you know, too bad. Kids are going to get lost to stranger danger. Or do you, you know, do everything you could possibly do to stop that person from doing something weird to some kid, right? No, they're going to go out there and do everything within their means. So why does it stop with guns? That why is an excellent And again, I think that, uh, like Dead Horse said, you don't need to force it on anybody. Or I think it was Dead Horse. So you don't have to force it on anybody. They're, if they don't want to, they don't have to. It's the unknown, right? The bad guy doesn't know, but he knows that there's lethal force potentially. They're they're done. They're not. They're only bad guys because it's opportunity. They have absolutely nothing to fear, and they have everything to gain. The only question is how big the media will spin it. You know, if they've done enough horrible things, then you know, will the media realize it? When we got into schools, I'm not a big school fan. Like Wood said, this is talking about stuff that happens less often than lightning. Like I said, I think less often than cars accidentally losing their safety brake and like plowing into a building, which happened to my schools when I was a little kid twice. Like, you know, there wasn't like drunk drivers. It was just a teacher was an idiot. Bus driver, something knocked a corner out of a school. One time a vehicle went straight into a classroom. There was only like three feet of brick and then some windows. Like, are we going to start fortifying everything into a prison because sometimes a car gets loose? Makes no sense to me. I think it's a diversion. It's a, it's an ambush, and they know that when they hit, uh, you know, emotional triggers like that, everybody gets goofy. Everybody wants to to suggest you know options, and we have a tendency to want to talk stuff through or whatever. And again, you don't talk something through with a fire. You don't talk something through with a tornado. There's tornado drills at every school. You don't just go, well, weather happened. Al Gore said it's time for our school to be wiped off the planet. No, you figure out ways to protect those kids from flying debris, right? Anyway, let's get off of schools and get back on Utah, which is an excellent effing state. Well, when I ask Dead Horse and the rest of the panels, they don't need to live in Utah for this. Is it possible that because every firearm that we know of was invented like seven miles north of me, um, 17 miles north of me right now, is it possible that Utah just has it in its essence and firearms are a thing? I know the Mormons are a factor, but is it possible that when you grow up knowing that every mechanism in a firearm that we still use today, no matter the platform, no matter the caliber, it was invented out of a guy's brain like several miles north of me right now? In a workshop that looks like it could be like in any guy's garage, really, too. I mean, because, you know, we're talking about tools that are 100 years old or over 100 years old. So, like, it, it's not like it was state-of-the-art technology necessarily either that they were making this, 
these guns out of <laughs> at the time i'm sure it was but not by today's standards right well i mean i spent some time in utah years ago uh, up in flaming gorge around vernal and one thing that i found when i was there is that i don't and i hate to generalize like this but i found that the mormon people who i met while i was there the the firearms ownership and the ver being very proud of being self-sufficient was very prevalent in their state and i think that's something that's probably carried over uh throughout that state since the mormons settled there i think that's just a big part of their culture that they've kept it alive oh yeah um the the mormons in their history already went through like a gun ban once um because of a town that they were in so once when they went through that once and then left that um and having their guns taken from them they they, they were kind of of a, the opinion like this ain't going to happen again i think and uh and they're they're really good preppers and they see the i think most of them really see the need for for guns and stuff and that's one thing is like I really like about uh, the people here in Utah is that we, I don't, we don't have a lot of those, uh, the bleeding hearts here. Um, you know, like if you only save one type stuff, we, we don't have that. So I, it, it's so prevalent in our culture, even little girls who are like seven and eight, nine years old here are like, they already know gun safety here. You can pretty much go up to any kid here almost and just, you know, like they already know gun safety. They've already shot guns. They've already been around, you know, been around it. Well, right on. I think that's actually a that's a big part of it, right? Because now, when somebody in the agenda-based media tries to trickle down, disseminate some some influence on them, and say, "This is how gun owners are," they don't even have to say, "What about my grandpa?" or "What about my brother?" or "What about somebody I know?" They can say, "No, I know that. That's wrong. You're duping me in what other ways?" So you don't have to question. You you you're immune to their their influence or their propaganda, right? Exactly. So yeah, Utah's pretty awesome. Uh, you got suppressors. You got suppressors while hunting. Yep. Right on. So you have uh, plenty of every shop in here's got everything a gun shop would have. I, I've been to a couple of cities, unfortunately, uh, and then a couple of states even where whatever local blah 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 they can't have even though the state can have you know they can't have but um that's not the case here i mean each store has a pretty decent selection we have a lot of firearms you know when i say firearms i mean specifically firearms things that are not handguns that are not rifles that are not shotguns i don't even know what to say i mean we've i've heard I've, i sit in a chat once in a while or i listen to chats occasionally and i'll hear these pessimistic people that are lazy and don't want to fight anymore and they'll say, we never win nothing. We never win. They always win. They have the long game and we never win, right? Except that there's firearms in like every store I've been in. I've been in like 50 something stores so far. Every one of them has shockwaves. Every one of them has TAC-14s. Every one of them has some sort of little nine millimeter garbage with a brace on it. Uh, every one of them has uh, the ability to order that stuff, right? Come yeah. on. Tell me about three years ago. Tell me about five years ago if that was even on the horizon, if that was even a thing. Like, did we even know to fight for that? It just happened. Yep. I it, didn't happen. it happened with a lot of effort and people buying those things. As capitalists, we bought them. The company said, hey, these are selling. Let's make them. And uh, ideally, we have uh, uh, people in government at this point that aren't 
interested in trying to infringe every two seconds, only every five or six seconds. What else can we talk about Utah being awesome? It looks kind of like a magazine. It looks kind of like a channel magazine, I think. Yeah. A lot of people say it's very, very beautiful here. We're, you know, we're kind of known our state model is like the greatest snow on earth. So we're really known for our snow and our skiing and our ski resorts. Um, that's probably what we're most famous for. Oh, I was saying like the shape of it looked like a foul, the gun, 308. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're right. In fact, one of the ways I describe it when I'm chatting about Utah is it looks to me every time I see Utah and it doesn't matter where, even where you live at. Because of the way that the mountains are, it's not like Wyoming where the basins are so wide, the areas between mountain ranges are so wide that you only see mountain ranges on the horizons. In Wyoming, everything's a bit bigger scale. So you see mountains either up close or right far away. In Utah, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm up here in the little smushed part or whatever, but it looks like a, uh, like, um, uh, what should I say, like a model railroad. It looks like a little pristine, perfect, like, vacation village except that the whole city looks like that and maybe it's because of the way they deliberately laid it out or obviously because they picked a like you say a freaking beautiful place to put it but i think it's like something about the proportion of your mountains versus the basins between them where a, a city or a town will fill up that basin and it's not like overpopulation sprawl with buildings and stuff that look gross it's like everybody's got a nice yard and like everybody takes pride in their stuff so the roads are well maintained and there's like I don't know it just seems like uh little, little railroad uh round model railroad villages when i when i look around yeah i can see that you know and uh uh i think our, our our cities are pretty well laid out here they're all laid out on a pretty much just a standard grid pattern and uh done really well and it's easy to find addresses here and stuff like that because everything's just on a coordinate system where it just goes higher or lower up in numbers, depending on whether you're going north, south, east, or west. So it's, it makes it real easy if you're like a delivery guy or something to find, you know, just to go right to where you're going. You don't even, you don't really need, once you know how it works and stuff, like you don't need GPS or nothing to live out here to find an address. You just need the address. And uh, this, 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 the streets themselves will pretty much tell you where to go, you know, just by watching the numbers grow. And, uh, um, the driving here can be crazy, <laughs> you know, like, uh, um, you know, I've been to a lot of way bigger cities that are way more dense than uh, densely populated than here at the big cities here in Utah. And, uh, and I still think Utah has some of the worst drivers. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's horrible. I don't want to get into that because I'm talking about how awesome it is. Uh, Weather wise. You got decent summers that aren't sweltering, from what I understand, and you got winters that aren't going to kill you. But every once in a while, you get a summer that'll kill you and a winter that'll kill you, right? Well, yeah, we've definitely had 106 degree days and stuff like that. Um, usually gets hot here in July is the hottest time of year. Um, we've had really bad winters, you know, eight feet of snow, stuff like that. That's not the common, though. Um, that's not the norm. But, uh, you know, but we can't have extreme weather. But for the most part, it's 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 mild summers, mild mild winters for the most part. It really is. So unless you live above uh, above six thousand feet, once you get above six thousand feet, that's the real snow line, and that's where you're going to get, you know, you're going to have snow pretty much all winter long on the ground. Well, and then tomorrow 
the weather saying snow at 6,000 feet. So yep. that's a lot of the town. That's all the mountains and probably into the town a little bit, right? Yeah. Yep. It sure is. Um, I'm going to go at it since this is the Daily Gun Show and I'm on the Gun Show Loophole Tour, specifically, you know, checking out gun shops and, and uh, comparing them and trying to share, you know, my experiences going to these shops. Um, I think I'm going to put Utah in a special category because Arizona is pretty good. And it's hard for me to compare things because I just know Arizona more intimately because I'm there all the time. And I go to gun shops constantly. <clears throat> so I've, I got to kind of throw Arizona out of there. But if I can, can think of like Texas and the other states that I've been to, um, I'm gonna, I, <clears throat> I've only been to corners of like Montana, you know, one corner and the other corner. I've been across North Dakota now, been across South Dakota. Those those states at least, they those northern states, they can't compete because they're so so sparse populated, so sparsely populated that there just aren't enough towns to have enough gun shops to to you know be of consequence. Let's say I don't want to say that I don't want this any of those gun shops. There's some really cool gun shops. But as far as like big picture, looking down from a map of the country, there just isn't enough opportunity for there to be a ton of gun shops in some of those cities or some of those states even. Um, then you get east and you get into the shitholes where the population's so high and the crime and everything. There's just issues with having gun shops. And there's some, I'm not saying there's not awesome gun shops everywhere, but as a general rule, uh, and then you get into like California and Illinois, change the game again because they got so many crazy restrictions and so few people interested in actually pursuing the the extreme stuff and you know not being legally able to gun shops had hands are tied right and they're just not you know i'm gonna say their hands are tied and their mouths are taped shut so they're not able to even come up for air like they got all kinds of issues so they're they're handicapped a little bit uh, but then you get into like you know your new mexico and your texas and some oklahoma and stuff and those are again not necessarily huge except for texas but there's um a different kind of proportion or ratio of gun shops so i'm going to say utah stands alone at least from my experience in like number of awesome gun shops per square mile so you know i've seen a bunch of them on this trip already i've seen a bunch of them in 2010 and even if they've come and gone since then i have a pretty good idea how many there are if you just go to google maps you see what i mean they're distributed all over the city, all over the area, um, and they're of quality and, um, you know, contents of the shops are just better than everywhere. Like I say, there's 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 definitely better shops in the rest of the country. I'm not saying every shop in Utah is awesome, but I definitely think you guys stand alone. And it's obviously something to do with the people who want that much stuff and who value it and buy that stuff so that these gun shops can exist. And then you go back there over and over so that these gun shops can stay around. But it's also, I don't know, it's it's fun to be able to uh, dig around to such a variety of awesome shops in one spot and not have to go, you know, from this town four hours over to the next town and see the two awesome gun shops in that state kind of thing. I don't know if that was a question, but that's my perception of uh, of the shops around here, or at least compared to some of the other states. All right. Did I lose the internet? I I lost it for a second. Sorry about that. 
Yeah, no worries. I was just trying to figure out. So, um, General saying sausage and blueberry pancakes are to town, simple and tasty. And he's saying Detroit has a fair number of gun shops. A lot of smaller ones are struggling or closed, though. Exactly. And that's where, I, don't, I mean, there had to be one shop. Didn't we go to a shop today? That, or no, we thought we found a shop that was closed, but we just had stupid Google Maps sent us the wrong place. That, that uh, Penguin Tactical, that was around the corner from where we thought it was closed. So I, I imagine there are gun shops that close up here, but <clears throat> every single state I've been in has had gun shops that no longer exist anymore. And that's that's sad. So yeah, I think I agree with you there that uh, I, I but I I'm happy to see we actually we don't really have gun shops closing. We have more gun shops opening. So there is constantly a new gun shop opening here. And it's not like one or two are closing and then one's opening. Like no, all the rest are still there. And then a new one's and more are coming. So it it's it's really growing here. Um, you know, the gun shops and, you know, uh, it, it's just, uh, you know, like I live in a small town, of, you know, a hundred thousand people and we have like, you know, basically, uh, four gun shops for that small of a town. And so you're not even count, uh, like a Walmart that has guns or like another sporting goods oh, store, yeah. like a tractor supply, the tractor supplies here have guns. Yep. Yep. And the cow ranch stores have guns. And, uh, if I counted all the places in a, in my town of a hundred thousand people that I could go buy a gun, it would probably be about nine stores, about nine different places I could go for that small of a town. And so, like you're saying, I don't think you're just bragging either. Cause you've got, obviously you've got CCW. So that's always a thing. You've got people that are buying them out of just general interest and curiosity and investment and just regular reasons to buy a gun, I guess. But then you obviously have hunting really good hunting and all kinds of it everything from varmint to like fancy yep. exotic stuff almost or at least the, you know the big game and yep. then you've got long range out the butt like talk about long range, literally miles yep and you got competitions all over the freaking place and i'm probably missing stuff but you got the, oh. whole, the whole shebang you know it's not like one of these cities or one of these uh states where they got trees everywhere so it's just tough to have a long distance range or they just don't have shotgun for some reason you got some excellent ranges here with facilities and like you say you can go anywhere in the in nature and basically it's i'm guessing you're a lot like arizona you got a lot of blm and forest service and stuff that's public land that you can shoot on yes a lot of public land that we can shoot on literally thousands of square miles of public land to shoot on where Texas, you know, biggest state, they act like they're so good, but it's all private. So good luck trying to do anything as a regular Joe Schmo in Texas, unless you know somebody. There's nowhere to just go do stuff. Arizona, New Mexico, uh, Utah, Nevada. We own all the public land, so we can go out there and recreate with our firearms. Yep. And the and you don't get uh, hassled or bothered or anything. And like if anyone ever comes up and talks to you, it's like, hey, what are you shooting? Like, you know, oh, that's a cool gun. So then it's like, you know, gun conversation, like the cool stuff. Right. And uh, so like every time I've ever been approached by a DNR, uh, 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 they go around and manage all the BLM property here in the uh, Div Division of Natural Resources and stuff. And uh, every time that I've been stopped by one of them or they've come out. And uh, hunt like during hunting season, if I'm out shooting, you know, they want to kind of come up and be like, hey, are you hunting deer? Are you just shooting or what are you doing? You know, but they're just cool. They're like, what gun are you shooting? What are you, 
yeah, like it, everyone just treats you here so nice when you have a firearm because no one like the the actual, uh, you know, the law enforcement here and stuff. They don't look as guns and gun owners as evil people or bad guys or, you know, a threat, really, like pretty much. From like my law enforcement friends, they've straight up told me like they they automatically assume every single person they pull over already has a gun. Like they that's just an automatic assumption they make here now. Is that just oh I I just, I'm pulling over this car for speeding? They have a gun. Like that's just an automatic thought process that they assume everyone's has a gun here now. And that probably leads to an environment of that that it is conducive to you know strong two-way state uh, i've been to states where they're not familiar you know and they they're like for example where you have a uh, what do they call it a requirement to uh notify or whatever it's called where like you have to tell them as soon as they come up like within the first utterances out of your mouth i got a gun in the car like i, I wouldn't want to be a cop where everybody's got to tell me that you know they're going to be a whole yeah, we, and we don't they're literally written into the law that we don't have to tell them. Like, even if they ask, we don't have to tell them at all. Like, even if they ask, do you got a gun in the car? We can legally say no. So it's not even, they, they, they don't really ask you here ever. Like they don't, it's not a thing when you get pulled over here for speeding or something. Like when me and Bob were pulled over, when we went to the Browning museum, uh, Bob and I, uh, and we were pulled over um, by an officer leaving John Browning's house. Actually, we were just leaving John Browning's house. And we got pulled over because we were just pulling out. We didn't have our seatbelts on. So they pulled us over for the seatbelts. And, you know, we're talking to the police officer telling me, yeah, we're checking out these guns. We're gun guys. Like he didn't not one time did he ask, do you guys got a gun? He just automatically assumed everyone in the car did. And and he was super nice and said, oh, I like that. That's awesome. And even Gate told us where John Browning, like other John Browning stuff was, the police officer did. And then told us, where, make sure to put on your seatbelts. Have a nice day. Like no ticket, no nothing. I mean, that's. So Bob got to experience that firsthand. And I think Bob was kind of shocked. Like he was like, wow, that was like so cool. Right on. Well, one of the reasons we do the show daily is so we can feature a gun shop every day. So I'm going to say let's feature John Browning's collection of factories and everything in Ogden. So we had a chance today to go up to the museum again and uh, check out not just the museum, but three of his factories and his home. And we actually located all of them this time instead of just assuming or Google mapping it. But yeah, we had a chance to pull up in front, touch them, and uh, it's awesome. So I don't know, where are we going to start that at? I think if you're a gun guy, period, and you're even just passing through Utah on your way to somewhere else, even if it's a couple miles out of the way, I think it's worth that trip um, to go up to the museum. And uh, pretty much, you know, business hours, nine to five or 10 to five. And uh, just to go up to that. And you can spend all day there, really. Like you really could. And uh, and it's not that it's that big, but there's a lot of other stuff to do there. But it's just so it's, cool. And the guns are just the so. significance of the stuff that's there. It's, it's, yeah. it's just it's it's his stuff. And it's all from the family. And, and it's thorough. It's really complete. Um, like history of his of his works you can have john browning books or winchester books like i do and and that museum have the actual guns that aren't prototype guns some of the very first ones of a certain model he ever made guns that were never released never never manufactured they, they just literally have the couple prototypes there and stuff like that 
so you can see like some of the things that he and his son were working on and uh you know some of this their their creativity and kind of the path they were going down you know a, a full a fully automatic lever action basically a lever action rifle but a fully automatic one right like you can just hold and pull the trigger and it, it it's fully auto you know like you you know back in 1900 I, crazy stuff like that it's really the first machine gun. you don't stop it it just empties the mag like you pull the trigger yeah, and yeah. empties the magazine pretty cool the, the tube yeah it empties the tube because yeah it was tube fed right it was just it sits there and empties that that tube full auto it's crazy and that particular one the story is he was out shooting with his brother and he noticed that the uh grass was moving every time he shot so he thought how can i harness that energy to do something and then he created automatic guns and then later on he decided to create auto semi-automatic guns and the lever action and everything so yeah pretty awesome um have you guys ever considered have you ever visited the area is or not yes no when i when i was in utah visiting john browning's shop was on my list of things to do i i find it fascinating i agree that you could spend an entire day there um you know it, it's sad because in california they have like the winchester house which has used to have a much bigger selection of all the old winchester products and i've watched them slowly uh eliminate that stuff so i'm really glad that in utah they're protecting all of john browning stuff i'd love to make a pilgrimage there i definitely need to get down there john browning has his own state holiday here john really browning day yeah, John Browning Day. What his birthday? No, I believe John Browning Day is February fourteenth, when the nineteen eleven pistol was first patented. Right on. So, so Valentine's Day here is really John Browning Day. So, if you love, if you, if you, if you really love someone, you'll give them a nineteen eleven for Valentine's Day. Now that's a tradition I like. So uh, we figured out this time that if you actually read what's going on in the museum, they actually tell you where the factories are. So John Browning is the son of Jonathan Browning. And there's also some of his guns there. Jonathan Browning uh, was born in Kentucky, I think, and then eventually moved to Illinois just before the Mormons got run out of Illinois physically, violently. And uh, he had created the harmonica gun before that, which is the gun that looks like a... Uh, a bunch of cylinders in a bar that come through the gun like a harmonica i guess and uh so he had obviously innovation and and uh you know creation in his blood and just the situation with illinois and whatnot um he got run out and um uh so you've got jonathan browning and then you've got um john browning where the hell was i going with this that uh Shit, I just started thinking about Jonathan Browning, and I totally forgot where I was going with this. Um, his whole family line lineage, because they have his son's guns, Val, and stuff there, too. Oh, and I guess that's what I was saying. Yeah, the, there's a timeline on the wall there, and we actually, I, I spent time looking at it. So, yeah, Jonathan, I was saying Jonathan Browning uh, was in Illinois. He couldn't, it seems like because of the situation in his life and the circumstances and the timeline and everything, uh, with that influence of people running them out, running all the Mormons out of Illinois. He just didn't have a chance to to 
create and innovate and whatever he would probably had in him. But uh, he brought all his tooling with him. He came to uh, Ogden. He has a second wife. He's a polygamist or was a polygamist. So his second, I think he had 16 kids with his first wife. And then he had like a second wife with a whole bunch of kids. He named all of them John. I don't know what's going on with that, but that's where John Browning comes from. He's the only one that kept the name. All his brothers went with some other name. So you've got Jonathan Browning has John Browning with his second wife. And John Browning has some brothers. They build their, he builds his first gun before he goes on his Mormon mission. He figures out how to do the lever gun after seeing lever guns on his mission comes back and makes that full auto lever gun, makes full autos, makes semi-autos, changes the world. So as he's doing that, he's going into business with his brothers. So I guess this is what, after they come back from their mission, I'm trying to remember all this because the video wasn't working today. Uh, so basically you got John Browning, uh, a Mormon coming back from his mission and going into the business of building guns and I guess bicycles. So they start, they set up shop at the first place. And then this timeline explains, you know, they, Basically, he invents the full auto, and then he invents semi-auto, and sells his his first full auto was that lever action that Dead Horse is talking about. You know, that was a complicated proof of theory type of thing, like a complicated machine. In other words, it wasn't practical. Although I think it was used, what they say in some war, so in some skirmish or whatever, uh, in limited numbers. But then they came up with he came up with basically something that looks like a 1919, a more boxy looking thing that put all the mechanisms inside, but it was the first full auto. The government buys it and he goes on to say, hey, building guns is the thing to do. So him and his brothers are building guns. They're selling patents. He hooks up with Winchester, starts selling patents. He eventually makes a 1911, sells that to the military, obviously, and keeps going. And each of these eras of his uh, inventions, he moved factories. He would need a bigger factory and they'd move. So it's all on this timeline on the wall at the museum. I'm not going to tell you the addresses because you can go to John Browning's museum and find those yourself. We'll tell you that they're on the timeline. And this time we figured that out. They tell you the little, literally the addresses. So instead of having to go from the like recollection of the people volunteering at the museum, we put those addresses into our map and set out to find the one that we knew where it was. The second one we knew where it was because there's a big plaque in front of it. The third one, we weren't quite sure, but now we are was right next to his house. So we saw his house again and the third factory. And then he had a storefront over on the main street. So um, you can see the buildings, the facades or whatever out front, you know, are still the same as they were when he built them or at least when he was in them. And uh, it's just awesome to see once you've, once, at least for me, once I kind of figured it all out with that timeline, like how him and his brothers went from, you know, starting out to being successful, to being more successful, to becoming John Browning and having a massive, massive thing that hotel basically to, to build 1911s and develop. Uh, just awesome experience going to this town. You, it's all within a couple miles. You could probably walk it if you had the balls to walk around in those neighborhoods. And uh, yeah, it's just really neat to, to be in the place where the world changed, really. They have uh, a lot of his machine guns there. Um, it, the very first light machine gun prototype they have there, and it fired 600 rounds a minute. And uh, the 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 qualifier that the military wanted was to be able to do three minutes of sustained fire. So it fired 1,800 rounds in three minutes and passed the test without a malfunction. 
And when you look at this gun, I mean, it is an obvious prototype. It looks just like just pieces of steel just welded together and there's really no beauty to it or anything. It's a pretty raw form prototype, right? Like this a proof of concept. And I find that kind of stuff fascinating. And his workbench area, that's all preserved where you get to see his mill. You get to see his barrel, uh, his, uh, um, his barrel oh, rifling machine. You get to see like the actual hand tools and stamps and stuff he touched and, Oh man. And uh, then a lot of this stuff in that museum's donated like uh, grandsons of his and stuff like will come back and donate his actual pocket knife and stuff like that. And so you actually get to see like the pocket knife John Browning carried every day for like 40 years in his pocket, stuff like that. From what I understand that the, I don't know what to call it. Like the room that is his workshop is from what I understand, like, the same as he left it like they they brought exactly. it over here but it's like the way that john browning's walked away from it is the way that it's in that room and yeah. it's in a it's in a room that's you know set up mocked up it's in the top of a train station so it's not his his workshop but it's set up literally you know the way that it was and then the way that they have it set up is you walk into like a little glass area so you're not just looking at it through a window you're walking into the room and experiencing it like we were saying you can literally smell the wood on the other side it's it's not a kind of you know you're not walking into a a museum where it's so fancy that you know everything's hermetically sealed or anything like you're in the same air as his tools and his bench and his prototypes yeah he had, he had an eight one of those a5 shotguns like taken apart on the bench and it looks like he was trying to change something on it or modify something or a newer version you know improve something and it's just like all disassembled on the bench just sitting there that's the way he all left it and then where the big building was where the statue is out front that, that we went to um that's that's now like the hotel that yeah. very top part up there i was telling you that like the penthouse up on top that's where all that stuff was so and this wasn't like he got sick and went you basically went over to whatever belgium died so this was, you know, not like he was like, I'm going to go die. So I'm going to put my bench here. He just went to Belgium. And, and that's then, the way yeah. his bench was. Yep. So awesome experience. I don't know if we're doing a great job of relaying it, but uh, what is it? Seven or 14? It's Is it $7 each to get in or something? Yeah. Yeah. Like seven bucks. Seven bucks. Um, leave him a tip if you want and uh, experience the people who volunteer there. You know, they volunteer there because they're halfway interested and they even if they're only halfway interested they know the history because there's usually a little movie going so they know the, the movie i'm sure by heart and uh if they're bored you know i'm sure they've read a lot of those plaques plus i suspect the guys that actually and girls because i've had a lady uh was running the thing the first time we went um i suspect they're in that room and not the train room and not the cowboy museum and not any of the other museums because they're interested in those firearms so they're definitely a resource when you're at it to, to realize these are people that are probably as interested or more than we are and have a lot of knowledge and they're there to they're there because they want to share that and it's a great if you have young kids or a wife or something who might not necessarily be interested in the browning museum in the same building this is literally like walk down a flight of stairs and you got a huge train museum you got a car museum you got a a cowboy a little cowboy museum and uh 
now they have an art gallery in there. And so there's other stuff to do for other family members while you're looking at guns too, which is kind of nice. That is true. Cause it wouldn't be much good if we're in there watching, looking at guns and they're just rolling their eyes in the back of their head, hating guns because they're bored. So it's probably good. It's funny that you say that dead horse. Cause everything you just listed made me happy. And I could see my, eye, my wife's eyes rolling in her head with each one. Yeah. <laughs> That me, I've gone through all the museums there, and oh, I haven't gone through the art gallery because it's like a real like art gallery thing, and I'm just not too arty. But uh, um, yeah, the car museum, train museum, and the I, I went through uh, the Wild West Museum for the first time today because that's newer, and uh, that yeah, I really enjoyed it. And that's because I figured out that they have one of the machines that smushes pennies, and you got a. Uh, you know, those machines where they smash a penny and then it gives the imprint of whatever, you know, museum or location it's in. So I wanted to get some of those for our Patreon people. But the way this particular machine works is there's four different designs, one for the cars, one for the trains, one for something else, and then one with a 1911 on it for Browning's Gun Museum. And I had to kind of sit there and twist the knob a billion times to get it to reset to the gun one so that I could stick a penny in there and then crank the penny, smish it, and then rotate it about a billion times to get it back. So anyway, it took me about two hours to pop out like six of them pennies. So Dead Horse had plenty of time to- yeah, uh, You, you definitely had uh, your exercise today just to crank in that handle. <laughs> All right. Well, so that was, uh, oh, let's talk about the house. So first time I experienced any of this is in 2010. I flew up with our crew to uh, to check out the outdoor retailer show, which used to be hosted here in Salt Lake City. And the outdoor retailer is very similar to SHOT Show. It's a, it's a trade show, but I think it's open to the end users as well. Um, but we went there as press and we were still kind of cutting our teeth. You know, we're only four or five years into going to trade shows as press. And it was a new trade show for us. So we flew up here uh, from Tucson, had a rental car and, you know, we had, I don't know, whatever, three days, I think of the, of the um, trade show, but you know, I didn't want to come up here just for the trade show. It cost a couple of bucks to come up here. So we stayed a few extra days and we checked out gun shops and that museum and um, uh, uh, the first time I went up there, um, you know, we figured out that the, the museum was there and then the lady, like I say, the lady was running it that time. And she kind of walked us around very similar to what uh, we experienced with Dead Horse and Bob when they went. Uh, but we were live during that show um, or that visit. And she walked us around. You know, I might have been live. I forget. This was 2010. Was I live? If I was live, it was on Quick or Blog TV. It wasn't on YouTube yet. But um, we might have been live. But anyway, um, no, we wouldn't have been live because there wasn't that good of internet back then. I probably was recording it uh, on video. But anyway, the lady walked us around and gave us a pretty decent tour of the place. And that's when she mentioned and his factories. And I never even fathomed that he had factories in town. I don't know why they put it in Ogden, right? Well, now, you know, in 2010, that first visit, it's like, oh, okay, uh, they uh they got these factories. So we're looking at each other and we're like, let's go check out these factories. Right. So we asked her where the factories were and she was trying to recollect. And she sent us to the hotel because the hotel has a big plaque in front of it. Everybody knows that that's a Browning thing. And then she sent us to the one that has Browning and sons, Browning and sons or Browning and brothers. 
Anyway, it says, you know, it still says Browning on the on the building, so that one's I easy. think it's Brothers, yeah. I think it's <laughs> it <is> Brothers. <coughs> so, um, and then she couldn't recollect where the third one was. So we ended up driving around town for a little while, and I don't even think she told us about the house. I think we were driving around looking for the third one, and then figured out that there's a John Browning house. So obviously he had to live somewhere, right? So it's this giant house. I mean, it seems giant. It looks like you know it's two stories, maybe three. There's a basement, I think, and then I don't know five or six rooms on each floor. I mean, it's a pretty substantial house. I mean, he was a pretty rich guy at the time, so I'm guessing you know he had a house, and he, I don't know how many kids he had, probably a bunch. Um, so anyway, we uh, figured out he had this house. So we walk up to the main door there, and it was for sale. It's actually always been for sale, I think, but it's a what does they call that? Like a historic building or something like it's a historic landmark. So they had a little thing to pick up there. If you were interested in buying it, you know, like a little piece of paper type of deal. So we grabbed one and it basically was given the description of the rooms and everything, but then made it clear that if you buy this thing, you can't do anything with it. Like it has to be kept historic or whatever. Like you can fix things, but you can't, you can fix them back to the way they were. You can't. Just yeah. It has, it has to be preserved. Yeah, and I I got the impression you couldn't even run like high speed internet in it or something like they wanted it to be you know historic house, but whatever I really don't know. But it was like five hundred grand I think, and I know when you guys went there it was still for for sale right, and you said you actually got to walk through it. Yep, yep, and we actually got to go into it and walk through it because it was like it was like an open house. It was for sale. No, we had always thought about making that the gun channels or the gun websites at the time headquarters, like buying it and setting up shop there. And running the empire out of there how awesome would that be right but um anyway we don't have five hundred thousand dollars so that was you know wishful thinking but this time you know i guess my second visit in real life i visited about a billion times on google maps and you know, live chats and stuff over the years but uh both of our surprise it's like i rented out to like apartment dwellers or something there's like yep. you know cool hanging out on the back porch and somebody's vacuum and like 600 cars in the parking lot and there's a big window in the front. There's like a, one of them cat gymnasiums or whatever they call that, like, you know, thing for cats to climb on. That's all carpeted like that thing sticking out the front window. Like that's the main thing you see when you look at the place now is this big cat thing. And uh, you know, you, you can tell that there's people in every single floor. So I wonder if these people that live in this place appreciate that they live in the house that John Browning lived in. I mean, there's a little plaque up front. They must know. But do you think they know? They probably know, but they they probably have no idea of the significance of of actual Browning, right? They're, to 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 them, he's just some guy who made a gun, maybe, right? And uh, you know, that's and I I re, I real I bet all those people are renters, and because uh, I bet you a real estate agent uh, is probably just started renting it out, you know. Ugh. I mean, I guess it's cool, but on the other hand, I'm jealous. But from what it sounds like, I wouldn't want to live in Ogden, and I wouldn't want to have tenants. You know, I wouldn't want to have neighbors. I'd keep. Well, they might be. See, the the all the cars kind of is what makes me think it's apartment, like I actual rent it out now. They have a thing called keepers here, which they'll have people, and uh, it's uh, they'll give you a discount on rent, a discount on everything, and you move in sparsely to a place, right? And uh, you keep it nice, you keep it clean, and you show it to people. And now you're kind of like the real estate agent, somewhat, just basically unlocking the door. You know what I mean? 
and uh, to show it to people when people are interested in buying it. But you'll get super cheap rent, and they do that to a lot of the college kids, right? Oh, and cool. uh, so it might be a keeper thing where just a college kid has a bunch of people over, but they might have given him the basement or something, and just to be a keeper to show it to people or something like that. Well, that makes sense. But there was so much crap and like just kind of household debris in the back there. It made me think, yeah. that, you know, my first impression was this a bunch of people who don't really respect the building they're in. You know, they could be in any apartment and be throwing their carpet over the railing and throwing that kiddie pool out there and stuff. Well, if it's a bunch of youngsters, then it sounds like we have a piece of history that's being destroyed by hipsters. That's sad. No, there was no like, you know, hipster type of shit. It was more like just somebody who's like dead or saying not paying a lot in rent and just threw a bunch of their stuff in the backyard and kind of parked wherever and oh, wait a but I don't know. I guess once maybe that's something we can look up or figure out. And there was a bunch of wood outside and stuff. So maybe they've you know been doing some renovation or you know starting on it, right? But I know a real estate company owns that now, and I know that they're losing money. Like they're not making money on it, just having it sit there, right? So, and if they can't sell it, and it didn't, that didn't look like they sold it to those people who were there. You know what I mean? Like it oh, doesn't. Yeah, they look definitely like didn't look like owners. Yeah. So it's. Uh, I, I'm thinking that, you know, a real estate money a company is just tired of losing money on it. Started renting it out and and doing that whole keeper clause where they it's technically they're not renting it out, but you know they are. <laughs> so, uh, um, did we talk about that the Browning outlet? Well, no. I thought you said it was boring. It is. It is like uh, a lot of people think it's going to be like a, a gun store or something, and really it's just like nothing but clothes. Like there's some pictures. There's a pictures Google pictures of it right there. The inside of it I just posted, but it's basically uh, like it reminds me of walking into like a mini REI or something. There's just nothing but a whole bunch of coats and jackets and boots and just that kind of Browning logo equipment. But like I I think that they had one gun in the whole store and i think it was like a baby browning 1911 and it was like in a case and not even for sale like right. and that was like Just the only like, gun. remember browning made guns and yeah, now there's yeah. boots with a deer on it yeah it was like hanging on the wall behind the cash register and you know so like there was like one gun in the whole store but yeah i was kind of disappointed going in there not that the browning equipment that they makes bad or anything it's just i was thinking it was going to be like a gun store right and it's not. It's just like clothing, boots, jackets, and stuff. So that's I, I was kind of disappointed in that. All right. Well, we're the only two that have been there, and obviously we get all jazzed up going to these places. One of the reasons I did the tour at all, and one definitely one of the reasons I ran the tour through uh, Utah because it's it's awesome and it's nice to be able to see it again. And uh, thanks for joining me because it's always better to hang out in some place like that when you can point at stuff and have somebody who, you know, appreciates it. And same thing, you can see what you're pointing at. So yeah. uh, pretty cool. But let's keep moving. Uh, there's other things to talk about. Let's talk about dogs. we got dog body on here. Oh, Ashley's saying, how about Gallinson's or whatever? So Gallinson's is another gun shop in, in uh, Salt Lake City, like right downtown. I think it's awesome. <clears throat> I've, again, we were here in 2010, and I, I don't remember honestly if if it was recommended or because it really could have been recommended. I can understand. I can almost. I can't imagine telling a bunch of people that you're going to Salt Lake City who are gun people 
and not having somebody say, go to Gallinson's. It's been there since 1914 and it's, it's unique in, as far as gun shops go. Um, anyway, so it's right downtown, which is cool. I know because it's, you know, kind of like in a city, really, because Salt Lake City's not, not, it's not shabby. It's a pretty big city. And uh, it's right downtown. So the parking's kind of crappy, but there's this alleyway behind it that's got murals and from like Florida roof, like just everything. It's like a real trip just going down this little tight alley into their back parking lot. And every wall is murals and they're firearm themed, but they're artistic. They're like, I don't know, skateboard type of graffiti type of snowboarding. I don't know, some kind of radical Mountain Dew lifestyle type of um, flair to them, but gun related. And uh, um, anyway, so it's a neat shop. It's been there for a long time. We discovered it in 10 and took some pictures of it and stuff. And, and we're just super impressed, but we flew. So there's nothing we could do about it. We just you know looked at stuff and left. Um, and then this year we went there and uh, at first they were like, hold on. But then we talked to the, to the manager, I guess. And they're like, oh no, come on in. So we checked it out today and uh, took a bunch of pictures and some video and uh, chatted with the guy that runs the place and a couple of the crew. And uh, we'll have lots of stuff to talk about, about Gallantson. So yeah, thanks for mentioning that. And uh, you know, I guess we don't have a rule that we can uh, uh, or have to chain or do just one shot, but um, we'll talk about that again for sure. We'll focus on it. Actually saying they have a guy change the paintings every so often. Yeah, we talked to Tim today, who's the manager guy there, uh, owner maybe. And um, that's done with intent. He was telling us how that he, he kind of commissions that local artists and, you know, says like, I want this one to be a Winchester. I want this one to be a, a Browning. I want this one to be a Vortex Optics. I want this one to be, you know, whatever company they're working with or they feel like featuring. And he's what would he told us like that one is every 12 months we change it. This portion is every like six months and this portion is every three months and around the corner it's once a year. So yeah, they have uh, artists come in on commission, like and they pay them to go in and, and make their building look awesome. I mean, it's kind of like going to what a skateboard shop or like what I remember the surf shops being like, you know, just having a completely unique style to them. And uh, again, talking about being an ambassador for the second amendment right in the middle of a city. I mean, it's Salt Lake city. So it's not like it's anti-gun or anything, but uh, anybody who might be visiting to go ski or whatever they do here in the winter uh, or go to that school or drop their kids off at that school, then, uh, you know, they get an experience of a gun shop that's hip and cool and going inside of it is an experience. It's a, it's a shop that's been there since 19, whatever, 14 or something for crying out loud. So it's definitely got stuff from floor to ceiling. And I'm, I guess I'm reviewing it, but we'll uh, we'll definitely chat about Gallinson's in the future. It's 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 cool in so many ways. One of the managers. Okay, thanks. All right, so we're going to talk about puppies. So Woods just took his puppy out, and this puppy here's been getting a lot of uh, attention. But we can also talk about uh, Dog Body's new book and. We were actually, I don't know if your ears were ringing, but, you know, I got the dog and I was over at Dead Horse's place and, you know, the dog was there. So we ended up talking about dogs quite a bit. He's got a little puppy and uh, we were chatting about stuff and your uh, book and you, your, your uh, interest and your sharing of like feeding dogs and whatnot and exercising them came up more than once over the last couple of days. Why don't we start by if you want to tell people about your book, what's going on? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I just, 
wrote out a book uh, it's on it for, it's for sale on amazon it's called pound for pound building healthy athletic dogs uh, and it's it's just meant to be kind of a base to get people their their footing to start their path on a dog handler journey uh, i've been working dogs my whole life and i the you know I have more faith in animals than I do people. And I've spent a lot of time working with different dog groups and shelters over the years. Uh, I specialize when I do shelter work with handling aggressive dogs that would normally get put down. So I've seen my fair share of X fight dogs and things over the years. And I try to rehome them with uh, different organizations that could actually still use those dogs. So they don't have to get put down just because their owners were horrible. And, uh, you know, I've put a lot of focus in building bigger, stronger dogs uh, in the healthiest way possible. And I kind of wanted to share that with people because more and more I find that uh, at least, I mean, you don't find this in the middle of the country as much as you find it in the big cities and stuff. But dogs have become more or less people treat them like they're almost like clothing accessories and they forget that dogs have needs and purposes and I think it's because people have forgotten how to bond with a dog. They've forgotten how to, you know, that the, how to really build that relationship. I mean, we, we talk about technology and people's relationships, how people are forgetting how to interact with each other. Well, we've definitely forgotten how to interact with our dogs. And there's a lot of bad information out there that people don't realize. Uh, you know, I, I love the veterinary community of the world. And there's a lot that they do right. And then there's things that they do wrong, not because they don't, not because they intend to do it wrong, but because the, the information isn't there. Uh, you guys, like you said, I do a lot of stuff talking about how I feed my dogs and I'm trying to get people to understand that we have to have higher standards for things like uh, dog nutrition, because despite what a lot of these companies will try to convince you dog food as we know it has only been around less than 100 years commercial dog food has only been around 158 years and commercial dog food was actually a byproduct of uh, dogs losing their jobs because of the industrial revolution prior to that dogs actually had a huge purpose in our society uh, dogs were used for everything not you know People think about dogs for maybe guard work and stuff like that today, but we used to use dogs to power machinery. Uh, you'll even find uh, they used to use small dogs. There's uh, pictures you'll find from like way back where they had a, uh, what do you call them? Uh, spits that would turn on fires and they'd have like a, basically like a glorified hamster wheel for a small dog to run on. But they had things like that in factories. Dogs were just a huge factor. And I want to help people get back into it. I especially want people to realize that there's lots of activities they could do with their dogs. Um, something that I'm going to be taking a focus on in the next couple of months as the holidays roll through is trying to promote people getting their dogs into nose work. There's actually uh, the cool part about nose work is the um, I'm going to mess up their acronym, but essentially it's the, uh, rescue dogs, uh, first responding dogs who do the search work after natural disasters. Uh, we have a mass shortage of these dogs in the country. We only have about 280 of them. And uh, yeah, it's, we need more of those types of dogs. It's a big deal. We, like we, have, we have less than 300 right now. And 
that's after we increased the number after 9-11 and we're still short a lot of dogs but the best part is that uh they can uh you can train any dog to be a search and rescue dog essentially so i want to start working on that to get more people into it but sorry that's probably a more long-winded explanation than you were looking for now can you say the title for me again what pound four pound uh pound four pound building healthy athletic dogs i don't know if you're watching the site yet throw us a link and i'll throw an affiliate link out there so that people buy it off of my link come jen yeah. Uh, links on the side, Chad G. Right on. So, you know, I don't care. That's I wanted to bring you on because I think it's a cool topic. And if anybody doesn't like dogs, then they don't have to listen to this show. So um, I got introduced to uh, dog health nutrition uh, when I got Oro, who's a Doberman, 13 years ago. I got him from an eye doctor who um, uh, made he was not going to give those dogs he maybe he's selling his dogs but he was not going to allow somebody to take one of the dogs that wasn't aware of how to feed them and that's where i got my education in how bad dog food is like off the shelf you know garbage dog food that you can buy with a purina label on it or something like that oh yeah so here's the link and like i say if you use that little short link i just posted on the Remember, YouTube hates you because they hate guns and they want to get us off of there. But I did post it over there on gun channels, which was paid for and created by people who love guns and appreciate your conversation over there. Anyway, um, I got introduced to how shitty off the shelf dog food was. And that's why I'm even more curious because in the earlier chat, you guys were talking about cost per day or whatever, or cost per meal. And but first, um, if you would elaborate on the whole concept of like bagged dog food because i got my own like insight to why they're it's horrible but um i'm curious what your point is well i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna try to sim i'll bring this back to the, the the big factor anybody who tells you that your dog has a different stomach than a wolf has never looked at anatomy uh you know like obviously we bred a different gestational whatever system into them that's ridiculous yeah uh, here's the thing i've as a hunter and as somebody who's worked with dogs my entire life i've seen the insides of plenty of wolves and i've seen what dogs look like as well and you know if you, even if you go online and you google and you do a search and you look up the anatomy breakdowns for a gray wolf and for a modern dog you'll find that they're identical and what people mistake is they think that just because a dog has omnivoric capability that that makes it automatically an omnivore and what they don't realize is that no omni they have that capability because it's how they get through the lean years um and so you know when you take that kind of thing into consideration and then you start looking at what they're trying to market for dog food nowadays I promise you there's not a dog in the history of dogs who's ever gone into a soy field and gone, oh my God, I have plenty of food. Look at all this soy that I can eat. Uh, just like they've never been in a cornfield. Uh, I've never, and I've hunted coyotes and wolves to, off of people's farmlands over the years. And I have never seen a wolf in a cornfield chowing on corn. It's just not what they do. It's not part of their diet. And can they i always tell people there's a difference between a dog surviving and a dog thriving 
And we've been convinced in this in the last hundred years that just because your dog can survive eating something somehow justifies and makes it okay. And people have forgotten that there's a difference between just getting by and a dog actually thriving. When I see pit bulls who are walking around and your average standard pit bull, a full grown male should be approximately 65 pounds on the big side and they should have a swooping waist. Yet I guarantee you the vast majority of pit bulls you see are closer to 85 pounds and they look like sausage rolls and people think they're cute. And it, you see that with a lot of dogs. I've seen that with, uh, you know, I even see that with bigger dogs, like uh, not Dobermans, but uh, with Rottweilers and things. And it's been a lot of time trying to educate people. Hey, you know, you got to keep your dog thin and they go, oh, well, you know, my dog eats so much and I feed according to what the bag says I'm supposed to feed. And a lot of times I tell people, I go, you know, dogs are not meant to run on high quantities of carbohydrates. If you look at how dogs really do their best, the higher the protein, the higher the fat, the better the dog does. And a lot of people try to point out these falsehood claims. Um, the most common one I hear is that, oh, you're going to destroy your dog's kidneys on high protein. And I always tell these people, show me the research, show me the study that proves that. And it almost inevitably, if they have anything to prove at all, they'll link back to one veterinary study from the 1980s, which isn't even a study. It's a really an anecdotal paper that a veterinarian came to the hypothesis of because he had a client's dog who had mass kidney failure and found out that they were feeding the dog table scraps. So he attributed it to a overly high protein diet. That's where that whole myth comes from. So you know, there's a lot of stuff like that I've been trying to debunk. Right on. Yeah. I well, like I say, my experience was from this like three ring binder that the doctor would give everybody who got one of his puppies and he kind of made us do a walkthrough with them. I'm almost a test at the end, really. And I suspect if someone were not really paying attention and he got the vibe that they weren't going to feed that dog um, legit and he was not going to sell them the dog. And uh, in, in, in his info, um, like you're saying, look at the ingredients. That's the easiest thing to do. Just like in for your own food, you should be looking at those ingredients. There's some law that makes the manufacturers write it on there, or they just know that in a capitalist society, consumers want to know what they're eating. So they know they're going to sell more food if they put the ingredients on there. And uh, yeah, if, if something that's protein, the meat in there, isn't the first ingredient, then that means the first ingredient ain't meat. So it's usually what, like you're saying, I haven't seen soy, but I've seen corn, corn for damn sure. I've seen sweet potatoes, peas. Yep. Uh, peas aren't the worst, but there's things that like a dog can eat when it's semi-digested in a dead thing. Like, sure, they'll eat the stomach out of something and they'll eat some grass, but it's partially digested by the critter they're eating or, yep. you know, intestines and almost completely digested. And sure, they're going to get some of these and whatnot but like say they're omnivores they'll eat the whole guts but uh yeah it's the meat that makes the canine uh, the carnivore uh operate and um so many of these things you buy especially at the inexpensive to normal priced in a regular store shelf uh just watch those ingredients spend five extra minutes in the aisle and 
the doctor's explanation, and I'm curious to see what you think was, or if you've heard of this, uh, but he says that in, in his research that the uh, recipes, so to speak, for dog foods, you know, they can feed anything they want to a dog. They can put anything in a bag. They can market it any way they want. But yep. they've yeah. determined that what people are looking for, like you said, people think of dogs as an accessory. I've got a car, I've got a, a bicycle, and I've got my dog. You know, when I go out to the park, I bring my dog with me, right? Um, I don't want to have to spend a lot of extra time on this dog. It's not my whole life, right? So uh, they design these foods so that when they go through the pup, they come out as a pellet. And it's easy to pick up out of a yard. So I'm going to have to walk my dog, and it's going to poop. And I'm going to have to pick that up in a bag. I'd rather not pick up a sloppy pile of Play-Doh or a sloppy pile of mashed potatoes. I'd like to pick up, you know, an acorn or two and drop them in my plastic bag and into the garbage. And uh, that's not necessarily the only reason, but it's, a, a for them, a happy byproduct of, you know, giving you some filler with a little bit of meat juice on it. Yeah, that high fiber. And, you know, uh, something is, you mentioned peas, so I'll, I'll touch on this topic. Uh, a lot of these higher brand dog foods right now uh, that are out there, they're adding pea protein. And usually they'll add peas, pea protein, and pea starch. <laughs> yeah, they have to list it three different times um, to a bag to try to increase the protein count. So that way they could say the crude protein is 31%. And... There's actually, the FDA is looking into it now, and I'm waiting to find out more results about it, but it's actually probably causing heart problems for dogs. Dogs don't have the ability to handle starches at high volume, and it seems to be causing plaque and capillary enlargement in hearts is being linked to starch in the diet. So peas and potatoes at the high volumes that some of these dog foods are putting in is potentially dangerous. And again, if you look at it from an evolutionary standpoint, these aren't things that dogs would be eating uh, normally unless they were starving and were eating the entire stomach contents of a kill. Now, I got a question for you, dog buddy. You now, shelf life. Go ahead, sir. Oh, I was just wondering, is this for all, like, does this go for all dogs in general? Because I have a uh, Chihuahua, and that's like a natural breed, right? It wasn't like a man-made, like, toy breed. Like, that's a natural wild breed. So does no, that Chihuahua, Chihuahuas are a man or a man-made breed. Let, let, let's be clear. All dogs at this point are man-made breeds. But you could, a raw diet for a chihuahua works fine. I used to work with a guy who used to feed his chihuahua three chicken wings a night. The vet told uh, us that uh, that uh, uh, like the table scraps were better than the dog food. That, that's basically what he told us. You know, he's like, that's you know, like your whatever you're eating, turkey, chicken, steak, you know, like that kind of stuff. Like just that's what you that's what people like ever since you know wolves domesticated man that's what you know we've been feeding dogs right yeah i mean if you look back at the the way that the dog human relationship started uh it, we we started our relationship some point in the ice age we would kill things they would eat what we left behind and you know that's how that's how they literally when they branched away from the from the ancestral wolf the ones that decided to become domesticated that's how they did it they they did it 
because they were eating and surviving off our scraps. Uh, now, I mean, nowadays, like I said, all dog breeds at this point are man-made. We, we've selectively bred to create everything. But even like I tell people the only problem I have with feeding dogs table scraps is most people don't know how to feed themselves. <laughs> so I hate to see them feeding their dog triscuits. <laughs> and there are certain uh, spices like dogs should avoid onions and garlic and some things like that that you, people like to use that you would definitely want to avoid with a dog. And one thing like uh, Arvid told me like our, like my dog is uh, like known to be uh, like uh, to have like low sugar and stuff, right? And to get lethargic because I guess in the wild or whatever that there's like they eat a lot of nuts and a lot of uh, like fruits and stuff, I guess. And so they like I, I get he's telling me that I don't get enough sugar in my dog's diet. So now we do a, a thing of honey. And that seems like it's helped a, a, a ton, just like once a week. We give her like a, a little mouthful of honey on our finger and uh, pure honey. And that seems like that has helped a ton. I, I can't remember the term he used for that, but it was basically kind of like diabetic kind of stuff. Like it was. Yeah. So when you talk about any of the, basically anything that would be considered a toy breed nowadays, there, there is a lot of pancreas, not pancreas, it's the wrong word. Um, but essentially they do have, they do seem to have a lot of glycemic problems. So you're not the first person to tell me about having a small dog where giving them honey or some form of natural sugar has helped. Though there's evidence to show that that has to do with what's happened in their breeding in the last hundred years where we've made them smaller than they ever were when they were quote-unquote wild um because in south america when chihuahuas were bred as kind of these wild dogs they were closer to the size of a fat corgi than oh. they are than they are to the size they are today so it seems as the as the body frames have gotten smaller and we've selectively bred them that we have caused not necessarily evolutionary changes but we've caused organ problems so that their systems don't work as well as they used to. Now, that being said, I have talked with people who work with smaller dogs and they talk about keeping a dog in a state of ketosis, essentially, where the dogs eat incredibly high levels of fat and they keep the dogs away from all forms of sugar and carbohydrates. And the dogs seem to do just fine, especially with dogs who are starting to show signs where they need insulin. Uh, that's how they've been going about trying to reverse it. You know, we're kind of all over the place here, but one of the things that I wanted to touch on when we started talking about this is um, you brought it up when you first started describing the book <clears throat> and why you wrote it. But, um, you know, when you think about what Dead Horse was just saying and, you know, like the extremes, right? You got your greyhounds, you got your little puppies, you got your, your chihuahuas, the teacup dogs are even worse. You've got uh, the pit, the bulls and everything. And then you got your, you know, strains that are straight out of wolves still, right? So you've got just all over the board. So we've already been like screwing with these poor animals, like all over the place, taking them to extremes for whatever interest we got them for or use. Like you say, there's all kinds of jobs they've been doing for us. But um, first you got that. So right off the bat, you know, we're stressing them out. At least we're stressing out the organism a little bit, right? 
And then we feed them garbage. We feed them filler garbage, 99% of us. And I'm not saying I've never done it. In fact, this dog's eating out of a bag right now. Because honestly, you know, I'm driving around like this. It is convenient or whatever. I can go into a place and buy a bag of stuff. It has a shelf life. She knows she likes it. She eats it. It keeps her alive. But, you know, when we're not around uh, or, you know, forced to do it that way, she eats other stuff. Um, so anyway, I'm just saying we, we create these animals that have all kinds of extremes in their biology. And then we feed them garbage. And then we wonder why they're not, you know, healthy and running around. And, and I think you kind of touched on it, too, with the whole vet thing. I'm not going to say they're sinister, but it seems like they're more than willing, just like a regular doctor, to keep treating this. You there, G? I think he was going to say like he was going to uh, keep. Uh, and uh, guess Dr. what? Let's huh? Oh, oh you, you cut out. Yeah, you cut out there for the last about thirty seconds. Well, you get the idea of what I'm saying. We we, yeah. we stress them out, and then we feed them garbage, and then we wonder why we're taking them to the vet all the time. And why they're getting these sicknesses and stuff that typically an organism like this, a, a mammal, uh, isn't going to experience. Well, I, I want to be clear about something with the vets. Um, as it stands right now, in, unless something has changed in the last six months, and I doubt it has, your average veterinarian receives 48 hours or less of animal nutrition. The average amount of time that they've told me they received was one eight hour class. And those classes are taught by representatives from the dog food companies, uh, most likely Hills. So the very people who go and give our veterinarians these very quick nutshell educations on how to feed dogs are the people who are selling the dog food. <laughs> well, isn't it actually the same people who are feeding our kids candy? And like, uh, yeah, Mars and Nestle. Yeah. A bunch and, of junk food, right? Yep. And then you throw into the fact that uh, I can't remember. I think it's on the. I want to say it's on the Mars side, but I could be wrong. Uh, but they own about 75% of the animal drug market. So they're giving you the, the food that causes the health problems to then sell you the pill that prolongs the problem. It doesn't solve anything. It just keeps the dog alive in misery while you're continuing yeah. to, to do what caused it in the first place. And, and that's why I tell people that they have to wake up. They have to realize there's a difference between a dog that is thriving and a dog that is simply surviving. If survival is not an acceptable level of care, we have to be because I mean, that's not even acceptable for us as people. You know, think about it. If you're just surviving, we're not, you, you don't, you're not the happiest person, you know, versus when you're able to get up and do things and you feel good, you know, then you're really living. And it's the same thing for our dogs. So we just need more people to realize that that's out there. And I think a lot of times the easiest way to do it with people, and in my experience, what I've had with getting people to feed their dogs better, before we could even get on the topic of getting them to willing to put in the time to feed their dog better, I often have to find 
some kind of activity, some motivation for them to want to spend more time with their dog. And usually if they spend more time with their dog and they start getting into an activity, uh, whether it be weight pulling with their dog or they decide to get into nose work or they want to go do dog agility, then all of a sudden feeding their dog better becomes a bigger priority for them. Awesome. So hopefully people will, I mean, your book isn't like a coffee table book that's going to, you know, put a, a strain on your relationship when you buy it. The paperback is 10 bucks. The Kindle is six. And how many pages is it? Uh, it it's, so there's, a, the book is about 60 pages. And to be honest with you, you can read that book in about 30 minutes. I designed the book's specifically there's a lot of pictures towards the end of the book uh so it's not 60 pages just packed you know from edge to edge with words the book is designed to be a very quick read because i've discovered that when you try it when you're trying to change people's minds if it takes longer than 30 minutes they're not going to read it um so like i said this is this book was just supposed to be a foundation piece i'll have longer books coming out later that'll go into more detail for people who get inspired, who want to go down that rabbit hole. Um, but this is really just supposed to be a book that is quick and easy to get people started. Right on. Hopefully you'll jump on and be on the show again. And we'll talk about your um, costs and your um, tips and tricks for uh, giving a dog a better diet. So uh, yeah, thanks. anytime. So uh, left to right, name your puppy, dead horse. Oh, I got a little uh, Chihuahua. Her name's Peaches. Uh, dog body? An American Bulldog named Atlas. Uh, Woods? Uh, I'm not uh, undetermined um, named Abby. Right on. And I have a purebred white wolf named Marshmallow. So uh, she's getting all kinds of attention. And I uh, appreciate everybody who's uh, digging that kind of stuff. And we're going to continue to... Like I say, if you'll jump in, we'll continue to talk about aspects of your book uh, and chatting about dogs because, uh, well, what the hell's the difference between dogs and guns anyway? Hey, like I said earlier today, you got to have a dog that can carry all that extra ammo. And now we can talk about dog carts and dog backpacks and stuff. All right. So, um, are we missing stuff? We're probably going a little bit long. Uh, uh, got a question from the YouTube side, which hates guns, which means they hate you. But over on gun channels, a bunch of people put their hard work and effort into supporting a channel. It's been around for five years. A platform's been around for five years that loves you and your guns. But Ashley says, you plan on doing one for like working dogs, like hunting? So what I have written in this book is definitely applicable to working dogs and hunting dogs because I write it from the perspective of somebody who has guard dogs who do protection work. Uh, as far as writing a book that's detailed on how to train your dog to hunt, I won't write a book for that just like I won't write a book for how to teach a dog how to be a takedown dog. That's something that I feel people need to actually go out with an experienced trainer to learn how to do because it puts way too much risk 
on the dog and on themselves if they do it wrong. So I don't want to give, I, I, I touch on it a little bit, but I don't give explicit details on how to do it. Yeah, kind of like firearms training, right? We can talk about our experiences in a class or whatever, but none of us are going to try to suggest that here, you can take this as a replacement or use this as your primer or something. Like there's just some things that you're better off with a coach or with an experienced person hands-on right there. Yeah. And your dog, obviously, and that kind of thing. Right on. So um, I don't know. Is there anything else we want to talk about tonight? Probably some other stuff I was thinking about. But I'm forgetting. All right, that air means. Chase, have you on? Uh, quit watching on YouTube. It sucks. They hate you. They hate everything about your passions. Gun channels is created by people who wanted to get away from that garbage. For five years, people have been putting enough money in to pay a lot of money for the servers and shit. It ain't perfect, but neither is nothing.